Welcome to Leadership Dialogues, a podcast for the greater New Orleans region. Leadership Dialogues is produced by the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, a nonprofit which provides a variety of nonpartisan platforms to inspire and engage business and community leaders in the greater New Orleans region. Hi, my name is Stephen Ruther, and thank you for joining us at Leadership Dialogues. It was just a little bit over 10 years ago that I attended a presentation given by the St. Tammany Economic Development Foundation. At that meeting, I first heard from the new president and CEO of Geno Inc., Mr. Michael Heck. Even then, he was talking about his double-barrel approach to economic development through business development and policy development. Under Michael's leadership, Geno Inc. rapidly transformed the entire way that Southeast Louisiana collaborated, partnered, and supported each other in the interests of regionalism and long-term growth. He created a gravity around Geno Inc. that attracted the best talent, the best ideas, and the greatest action towards our most meaningful opportunities for smart economic development. And after a decade of this effort, they had a banner year in 2019 with 1,685 direct jobs in the greater New Orleans region and $2.3 billion in capital investment. The New Orleans region is now consistently ranked at the top of lists measuring economic development activity and quality of life assets. And Gene Owing's program of work has revolutionized how economic development organizations embrace a holistic approach to creating jobs, generating wealth, training a workforce, driving good policy, and accentuating quality of culture. Under Michael's leadership, Geno Inc. has been named a top economic development organization in the United States by Site Selection Magazine. Before coming to Geno Inc., Michael led the quarter billion dollar Katrina Small Business Recovery Program for Louisiana. And prior to that, he worked for Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York City, running the post 9-11 Small Business Program. His entrepreneurial experience includes co-founding a conglomerate of restaurant ventures, including Foreign Cinema, which was named Restaurant of the Year in 2000 in San Francisco. He began his career as a strategic management consultant in the US, Canada, Europe, and Australia. Michael holds an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business and an undergraduate degree from Yale. Recently, he was recognized as one of the 10 people who made a difference in the South, one of the 20 business icons of the tricentennial, and 2018 CEO of the year. Earlier this week, he sat down with me to have a conversation about the work of Gino Inc., as well as discuss COVID-19 and its impacts upon the local economy, the state economy, and the economy of the United States. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Excellent. Well, thanks, Michael, so much for joining us. Uh, First, take a minute or two to just tell us about Gino Inc.'s larger work in the region, obviously uh, predating COVID-19, and what are some of the notable successes that y'all have had uh, over the last few years? (laughs) Wow. Well, Geno Inc., we're the uh, economic development organization for the 10 parishes of South Louisiana. Uh, we're a nonprofit, uh, public-private organization supported by uh, corporate uh, support as well as by the public sector. Uh, we have two sides of our shop. The first side is business development. That's about bringing in new companies and helping existing companies thrive and grow. And then we've got the other side, which is the business environment, which is about creating a better business uh, environment. Um, probably our, our biggest successes, I would say, would be uh, um, fixing flood insurance for St. Bernard and, uh, and the region and the nation back in 2014, uh, bringing British Airways, so restarting international service to uh, the airport, uh, and maybe bringing in DXE technology, the biggest technology win 
in uh, our biggest economic development win in Louisiana history. Uh, and those kind of show different sides of our, of our, of our shop. And I'm hopeful that now this uh, coronavirus episode will be another place we can look back and be proud of our work as well. Excellent. Well, let me ask you, I know you've had throughout your career several different obstacles, economic obstacles, natural disasters that you've dealt with through the organizations that you've been involved with. Um, how does this particular situation differ from any of those, or is it very much uh, similar in terms of how you respond to that sort of disaster and um, plan for being able to uh, have a resilient comeback to that process? That's a great question. Uh, this disaster is different. Uh, it's unique, um, but it does share characteristics of a lot of them. I can go through that. And the response, though, I think is pretty similar. It's pretty generic, the right way to respond. Um, so I'll go back to my first disaster, 2001, the uh, dot-com crash when I was in the restaurant business and we lost 40% year-on-year revenues. That's similar to what's happening now. Now it's even worse for re restaurants and small businesses seeing their revenues go to zero almost overnight. It's a liquidity crunch that's caused. Um, if you look at 9-11, that shut down the economy of New York City uh, and a lot of the country for a period of time. That's what's happening here as the recession is really the necessary cause or cure for, for the disease, but it's happening on a global basis. So there's a similar shutting down of the economy to 9-11. Also, this feels a lot like 9-11 in that 9-11 really felt like something that changed the rules of the game. Uh, it felt like things were going to be different going forward. And I think with Corona, we're going to and going forward have a BC before Corona and an AC after Corona, and the world is going to be different uh, going forward, I think. Corona, like 9-11, changes everything. Um, then you could talk about Katrina. Of course, Katrina was very different in the physical damage, and we obviously don't have that here. This is an invisible uh, enemy, but I think the, uh, pervasive, the pervasiveness of the impact and the requirement for massive infusions of dollars uh, is similar uh, to Katrina. But I will say that because um, there's not the physical damage and because even though we're sequestered, we're doing so with electricity and air conditioning. This just doesn't feel physically uh, like, like Katrina for obvious reasons. Um, 2008 was a banking crisis, a banking disaster. This one has so far not been that, although there were some questions about people hoarding cash and runs on banks, but so far the banking system has proven to be um, resilient and well capitalized in this. And so there are elements of all the disasters. This one though, of course, is is unique. Um, but the response that's required is the same. I've learned uh, over time that what people want in these is they want concise, actionable information. Uh, they want uh, positive direction that's grounded in truth. Um, and they basically want to know that um, there's a direction that they can be working towards. And I think that our leaders, if you look at the job that our elected officials are doing, I think it's reflective of the fact that um, they have had the experience of Katrina and they know that they want to uh, over communicate, that they don't want to sugarcoat the facts and that if they are very communicative and very honest, that people are going to feel that at least they have an understanding of, of the situation. Um, and then beyond that, I know, again, going back to 2001, that from a business perspective, cash is the issue. Cash flow is the issue. Uh, getting businesses liquidity, which the CARES Act does at a scale and a flexibility and a directness never before seen, is the key thing to do. 
And I think the key lesson that's been learned versus 2008 is that 2008, the relief package and TARP really targeted big, big business. Main Street felt left out. This time, the, business, the money is going to big business, Main Street, families, individuals, down to the gig worker. I think it's a much, it's a much wiser approach that they're taking now. No, so to build upon that, I absolutely agree. And I think you've seen a much better blend in this process of who gets those funds and how that impacts the economy at all levels. Um, I have heard sort of murmurs that there's inevitably going to have to be uh, additional stimulus packages that come out uh, in legislation at some point in the future. Have y'all um, heard similar things? And does anybody have any idea what that would look like at this time? I would tend to agree that there's going to be another package. Uh, you can just look, for example, at the Paycheck Protection Program and just run some numbers on it and realize that it's probably not going to be sufficient if the uptake is what we think it's going to be. And it's hard to believe that people are going to be left out in the cold on this deal. Then there are other things that are not in the current uh, program or current uh, relief that we might want to see. For example, CDBG block grants for hospitality to restart that industry like we saw after Katrina. So we're actually beginning to work at the regional level to come up with our one pager of what we'd like in future bills, because uh, it's our belief that if we go back to DC with a unified voice and a singular ask, it's gonna be received much better by our delegation and Congress. We don't wanna make some mistakes of the past where everybody was coming individually, the numbers didn't add up and it was just kind of a money grab, that doesn't work. We're trying to be much more responsible and unified in our approach. That's excellent. Well, let's, um, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to delve a little bit deeper. I'm sure Gino Inc. has been involved since the very beginning with um, monitoring what happened last week with the, the initial stimulus package and the bills that were filed and, and kind of fell apart until uh, ultimately they came together, I believe it was on Friday for the CARES Act. So can you kind of highlight some of the salient uh, points, the bullet points of that legislation? and um, exactly what that means for our business community, both at the regional level and perhaps nationally, because we started to get into that a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit more on what, what are the key points that really matter to us. Yeah, it's a huge bill, um, uh, but I'll, I'll kind of go through, Stephen, kind of what the salient points are for us from a business standpoint. Uh, the first is this Paycheck Protection Program, which is a $350 billion that can provide uh, loans of up to 10 million for businesses, the loans are administered by local banks and eight weeks of operating costs are forgivable. It can be converted into a grant, which is a totally new thing. So people should start talking to their banks about that. Then you've got the 500 billion corporate liquidity fund, which includes uh, I think up to 25 billion for airlines, 17 billion for essential uh, businesses. I think Boeing might be a recipient of that, which is relevant for us because of Boeing being the number one employer out at Mashu employing about 700 people. Then within that, there's gonna be about $454 billion, which is going to be uh, loans for um, mid-sized businesses, 500 people up to 10,000. And the rules of that are currently being, uh, being worked out. Uh, then there are gonna be other elements like uh, payroll tax, uh, credit refunds as a way of uh, advancing money to employers that have to deal with uh, paid family leave, there is uh, enhanced unemployment insurance, of course, $600 additional for four months on top of what states already give, which is a significant cushion for individuals who are laid off. Um, there is a state stabilization fund of about $150 billion that's gonna go to states and municipalities. Uh, and it goes all the way down to the checks for individuals, 
which are $1,200 per individual, $500 per child, uh, that begins to tail off uh, for individuals making more than $75,000. And there's a lot more in it. Um, the, the bill errors may be on the side of inclusivity, but again, I think that is a consequence of the lessons learned from 2008 when people were left out and it generated a lot of resentment. So I have, um, I guess, sort of a, a two-layered question building upon what you, what you just said. So first of all, this is the, the first that I heard. I've looked at several documents kind of summarizing the legislation, but I'm really excited to hear about the state stabilization for their budgets. And one of my key curiosities going through this is obviously nationally state governments are going to be um, have significant issues trying to recover from this. But specifically in Louisiana, um, where so much is derived from oil and gas, we're really dealing with a double whammy of the normal hit on the economy plus uh, low oil prices, which affects our overall state budget and our projections. So I guess um, my question is, I know Geno Inc. has worked really hard to diversify the economy. Um, is that helping in any capacity to kind of cushion this blow? And, and what would be the strategies moving forward out of this in terms of trying to continue that process? Or does this help um, identify sectors where we need to be more heavily invested? And then the second corollary question of that is, um, how significantly does oil and gas continue to play into this, this budgeting process for us? And what are the long-term impacts, um, if anybody knows, uh, for our state with oil and gas and um, the pricing there? All right, so that's a nice short question. Thank you. <laughs> um, let's, let's answer it backwards. Uh, $1 uh, of a barrel of oil equals $12 million in the state treasury. So we've gone from over 50 uh, down to, I think, below 20 right now. So that's hundreds of millions of dollars of, of impact to our state uh, treasury. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, then we're also, of course, getting hit on sales tax because uh, people are not able to buy right now from a lot of, a lot of uh, stores, the exception of being grocery and pharmacy uh, and so forth. So yeah, there are very much going to be impacts at both levels. Um, we've been aggressively trying to diversify the economy since Katrina because that was also a lesson that came out of Katrina is that in the New Orleans region, having a two-trick pony basically of energy and hospitality was too risky. Um, the good news is that we're making real progress. We are uh, perennially uh, one of the top 10 fastest growing tech markets in the country and we're typically top five for women and African Americans on a per capita basis in those tech jobs, which is very exciting. But we're not gonna you know, remake uh, centuries of economic history in just 10 years. So we still have a long way to go. I think this is just gonna uh, highlight the need for us to continue to diversify into tech, into healthcare. We're looking at new sectors like wind manufacturing uh, as a way of, of kind of complementing uh, energy uh, exploration. Um, and this is just going to yeah, just going to kind of uh, give a boost to that need strategically to keep diversifying. This is a question a little bit sort of different vein, but I personally have a curiosity about the future of work. And I, I think, you know, uh, in the in this current presidential cycle, we've seen some candidates with some creative ideas about what that might look like with the fourth economy. And so I can't help but think um, we've essentially accelerated that process with individuals working remotely and um, the technologies, uh, A, there's an adaption and adoption of them that wouldn't have happened quite as quickly, but the right. technology itself will be evolved to meet the needs of businesses and 
organizations. So do you have any thoughts or what's your perspective on how this impacts how people actually work for the future? And then secondarily, um, unfortunately, we're seeing record uh, sort of layoffs, which hopefully the payroll protection program helps um, kind of prevent some of that and, and mm -hmm. control some of that. But we saw, I think it was 3.2 million. I mean, um, un 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 unthinkable, yeah. Right, just incomprehensible sort of numbers. What does uh, the future of work mean for individuals who maybe don't have the skill sets um, or, or don't have the ability to retool, especially when we're dealing with all these other issues, to be able to find meaningful work in the workplace um, moving forward? Does, does that question make sense? I know it's, again. Yeah, no, it does, because the, the way that we're thinking about this disaster is that you've got a phase one, which is the health crisis about flattening the curve, a phase two, which is about getting America back to work in the new normal with new protocols, new procedures, which is uh, kind of what you're beginning to get at in the work question. And then the phase three is what are the policy implications on how we're going to adapt to this new environment, which is everything from what are our policies towards workers to what's our strategy towards supply chains? Um, you know, do we, maybe people are not gonna wanna concentrate in China for manufacturing. I was talking to a software company and they were saying that they are thinking that it's not a good idea anymore to outsource to uh, India because in America, when we have to work from home, we can do it. In India, when you're in Bangalore, people can't work from home. The infrastructure is not there. So you're having business continuity issues there. So there are going to be all kinds of implications on how we um, think about working differently. Um, what I can say is that in terms of the work from home and remote work and telecommuting and telemedicine, um, this Zoom platform that we're on right now, to me, is a game changer. This is the first video conferencing technology that I don't absolutely hate. Uh, for whatever reason, the architecture is just really elegant and it works and it's not embarrassing. Um, and so I could see this becoming, it already is becoming broadly adapted. I don't think we're gonna go backwards. What I will say though, is that I've been thinking about how productive I've been able to be here working from home. I mean, my productivity has probably, you know, tripled or, or, or quadrupled uh, because I'm just here grinding from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. every day and then working at night some more. But I think the whole reason why I'm able to be so productive right now is because I put in so many years of meetings and lunches and face-to-face -face, uh, time building these relationships. And if I didn't have these relationships, I don't think I'd be able to leverage them right now and work quickly. So I don't think that we're all just gonna to retreat to our man caves and never come out because ultimately, I still believe that face-to-face -face conversation and interaction is an immutable part of, of human society and human business. And that's not going to uh, fundamentally change. But yeah, we're gonna do a lot more of this Zoom stuff and it, you know, it kind of works. Um, in terms of workers, Again, I think this is only going to accelerate a trend that we were already working on at Gina Wink and Norley, which is preparing our workers for skills of the future. And so programs that we were doing that were driven by industry, like our mechatronics program, we're doing in partnership with NTCC, Delgado and Nunez and Zatarans, Latrum and Elmer, those type of apprenticeship programs, which are not so much about theory, not so much about academics, but really about practical applied training they're gonna become ever more popular because businesses are not gonna care about where your degree is from. They're gonna to wanna to know about your skills and your attitude. And I think um, it's hard to teach people attitude, but the skill training, stuff that's happening at our two-year colleges, associate's degrees, credentials, online learning, um, that has a practical outcome, that's gonna go through the roof following this.
Um, let me ask you, and this is, this is at best uh, an educated guess for anybody, but you talked about your three phases. Um, one thing that I've consistently been asking individuals, um, because I'm trying to figure it out like everybody else is, um, what's your timeline for sort of, A, that immediate uh, addressing of the health crisis that we're dealing with? And obviously we know the president and um, within Louisiana, Governor John Bell Edwards has extended that to April 30th. But realistically, in, in your opinion, when do you see us tr kind of getting back to some sense of whatever this new normal is? And, um, and when are we going to be able to focus more acutely on, on the second phase and the long term? Uh, recovery from this process. I'm not a scientist and I didn't even stay in a Holiday Inn Express last night. So I'm going to caveat this by saying, you know, I, I truly don't know. But my instinct is that even if um, we're not back to a new normal by the end of April, that by May, we're going to be transitioning back to some form of more normalcy in work. Uh, it might be that people who have already uh, had uh, COVID-19 and are immune are getting back to work. It might be that people who are don't have underlying conditions are getting back to work just with better protocols and uh, distancing. Um, my instinct is that April might be more of this kind of sheltering at home, work from home, but that by May there's going to be a pretty significant transition back to some type of, of, of semi-normal work environment. And again, that's just me reading the tea leaves and uh, being hopeful. Any, uh, any final thoughts or things that you'd like to share with everyone that they should check out? And obviously, aside from your own uh, contact information, website and resources, any final thoughts? I'd love people to look at GNO Pivot on the GNO Inc. website. GNO Pivot is a place for companies that are pivoting their production capacities to meet new demands because of the coronavirus where they're going. And it's really exciting to see distilleries making hand sanitizers and clothing companies making gowns and masks and 3D printers making PPE. You know, we've got a tradition of pivoting that goes back to Andrew Higgins, who pivoted his boat making facility to make the landing craft that landed in Normandy and basically saved the free world. And so we know how to do this. And I'm, uh, I'm proud, but not surprised by the fact that the business community is stepping up and pivoting again to both maintain their own businesses, but also serve urgent need and save lives. And if you want more about that, or if your business um, is ready to pivot, you can go to the GNO Inc. website and click on the GNO Pivot page. Excellent. Thank you so much, Michael. We truly appreciate your time and uh, your insight onto uh, the time that we're going into. So we appreciate it. Stephen, thanks so much. And thanks for all your leadership as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you'd like to download this episode or see some of our other episodes, please visit www.norleypodcast.com. Additionally, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Our pinnacle sponsor is Entergy. Our legacy of leadership sponsors are Atmos and Shelmet Refining. Our impact sponsor is Jones Walker. Our support sponsors are Hancock Whitney and Gamble Communications. Our stakeholder sponsors are LCMC Health, Iberia Bank, Metairie Bank, the Mira Foundation, and the Port of New Orleans. And our recognized partner is GNO Inc.